Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn this morning to the book of Judges, and we are up to chapter 14 as we look at what is perhaps the most entertaining story in the book of Judges in the life of Samson. Now last week we looked at chapter 13, and we saw God's announcement of Samson's birth to Manoah and his barren wife, a story which highlighted God's grace and God's goodness and God's sovereign care of his people. Today we want to jump into the details of Samson's life. But as we do so, don't forget the main point of last week's text. Despite all of the action with Samson, Samson is not the real hero of the story. God is, and we are following his work in his people's life. Now today, as I mentioned in our Friday update, I really want to cover the entirety of Samson's life, which covers chapters 14 through 16, and I'd encourage you to read all three chapters on your own. What I want to do is read the first seven verses of chapter 14, and we'll jump and read all of chapter 15 and conclude with a few verses from chapter 16. And I realize in a week that we've already taken extra time for ordaining and installing elders and deacons and and looking at deaconesses, I'm begging some indulgence for an extra time to read a longer passage of Scripture, but uh, I trust in your patience. So let's begin with Judges 14, verses 1 through 7. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. And then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now the rest of chapter 14 deals a wedding party that Samson hosts in which he has a betting game over whether the companions can guess his riddle about the lion that uh, he killed with 30 changes of clothing as the prize for who wins. And the companions get Samson's fiancée to find the secret out for them, and they be- she betrays him, not for the last time in Samson's life. And in a rage, Samson goes to a neighboring town and kills 30 Philistines using their clothing as the prize payment, and storms off home. Which brings us to chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. 
Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid at Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. And 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etem and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to them, Well, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hands and took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called en which is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Chapter 16 details two more stories in which Samson gets in trouble for his love of women. He goes to visit a prostitute and is nearly captured. But he rips out the gates of the city and hauls them away. Then he falls in love with Delilah, who tries three times to hand him over to the Philistines before Samson finally tells her the truth of his strength, and he's captured. We want to pick up in verse 23 when he is under the capture of the Philistines. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and rejoice And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they say, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. 
Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this one, so God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the miller pillars on which the house rested and leaned his weight on them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and all the people who were with it. So the dead he killed at the day of his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshdale and the tomb of Manoah and his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. God, this is your word. Would you speak to us by your spirit this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In his commentary on Judges, Dale Ralph Davis tells us that if we're going to understand this story properly, we have to look at it more carefully than your average British customs officer examines shipments of goods. See, in 1948, tensions were running high in Palestine between the Jews and the Arabs. And Britain was on the ground to promote a diplomatic solution and forbid a military buildup in the region. The Jews, however, knew a conflict was likely and that they were unprepared. And so they sent Ehud Avril to Czechoslovakia to purchase weapons and try to smuggle them back to Palestine. After three months of planning in April of 1948, Avril shipped 4,500 rifles, 200 machine guns, and a load of ammunition to Tel Aviv, buried in the bottom of a boat under 600 tons of onions. Well, the customs officers saw the onions and assumed they were the point of the shipment, but they were just the packaging for the real point of the arms underneath. On a similar way, it's very easy to read the story of Samson and see the powerful, entertaining, sinful, foolish actions as Samson careens through Philistia for a few decades. But Samson is just the vehicle for the main point of these chapters. And the main point is this, that God is at work for the sake of his name and his people. And I want us to see that this morning as we look at three stories of Samson's foolishness and three evidences of God's faithfulness. So let's start with the three stories of Samson's foolishness, each one of which begins with his desire for a woman. The action kicks off in chapter 14. Samson goes down to Timnah and sees a very attractive young Philistine girl and immediately demands that his father arrange a marriage. Now you have to imagine that this was a blow to Manoah and his wife, The angel of the Lord had promised that Samson would save Israel from the Philistines. And here, in disobedience to God, he's going to marry a Philistine. But Samson is unswayed by their logic, and he declares in verse 3 in the 21st century lingo translation, who cares? She's really attractive. Get her for me. Well, this is a dubious start for one who is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord from the womb. But Samson goes on to disregard his Nazarite vow in several places in this chapter. He kills a lion. And in the verses after that, we find he returned to that lion's carcass and ate honey out of it. Even though Leviticus 11.27 says that touching the carcass of an animal that walks on its paws makes you unclean. 
And Samson's mother had been specifically told by the angel not to eat anything unclean due to this Nazarite vow. And then, of course, Samson went down and had a week-long wedding feast with Philistine companions, a feast that almost certainly was filled with drinking of wine and contradiction of his Nazarite vow. It's at that feast that Samson played the high-stakes betting game, posed his riddle, was double-crossed by his fiancée, and so loses the bet. And in his rage, Samson, inspired by the Spirit of the Lord, mind you, went to a neighboring city, killed 30 Philistines for their clothing, and stormed off home, leaving his fiancée behind. Not long after, Samson regretted his decision and went back to his bride, only to find she'd been married off to his companion. And in his rage then, Samson did what every spurned lover does, catch 300 foxes, tie their tails to torches, and set fire to the fields. Of course, this ruins the region's crops for the year, and not surprisingly, the Philistines march for revenge on Judah. But in a striking response, Judah sides not with Samson, but with the Philistines. And so for the third time in this story, the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson as he grabs a fresh jawbone and kills a thousand Philistines. So this first story of Samson's folly ends, having thoroughly established his impetuous desire, his rash anger, which repeatedly gets him into trouble. And yet each time the Philistines think that they have him cornered, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, empowers Samson to win the day. Episode 2 then happens at the beginning of chapter 16 when Samson goes to the Philistine city of Gaza and spends the night with a prostitute. News spreads quickly that he's there, so the local militia surrounds the city ready to ambush him, but decides to wait for morning. Samson doesn't wait for morning, though. At midnight, he gets up and nonchalantly grabs the gates, post bars and all, rips them out of the ground, and marches them back and deposits them at Hebron, which was 30 miles from Gaza. And so once again, impetuous desire. Once again, the Philistines think they have him, and he humiliates them, which sets up the climactic third story, which begins with Samson falling in love with Delilah, the Philistines offering Delilah honor and riches if she deuces, seduces Samson to find his secret. And three times she asks Samson, how could you be overpowered? Three times he lies to her, and yet three times she clearly betrays him and tells the Philistines his words. At which point we think Samson knows what Delilah's up to. She, he knows what she's doing, and we think, why in the world does Samson keep hanging around Delilah? And if he's going to, why in the world does he tell her the truth the fourth time? Maybe he's enjoying the game. Or maybe he fears losing Delilah more than he fears losing the presence of the Lord. But whatever the case, the third story ends with Samson betraying his Nazarite vow yet again, telling Delilah the secret of his hair, getting shaved in his sleep, waking up to find his strength is gone, and he's captured, his eyes are plucked out, and he's shackled in a prison grinding grain for his enemies. And read through these chapters and we can't help but be struck by Samson's foolishness and the consequences of pursuing what we want in the moment. Just consider the warning that Samson's life offers. Samson, remember, was to be set apart to the Lord. But to be set apart as the Lord's, 
means we are under his authority. It means there are commands to be obeyed, duties to be filled. Some things are set off limits. And the question is, how will we view those rules, those duties, and those commands that the Lord gives us if we are under his authority? See, every wall or fence or limit can either be a castle for our protection and enjoyment or a prison for our confinement. And even walls that are put up for our protection can begin to feel like a prison if we don't keep our eyes fixed on the one who gives us those limits and why they are there. See, God's calling and commands are for our good. They protect us and they enable us to serve our God and our King. But sin, ever since the first words of the serpent in Genesis 3, has always suggested that God's commands are restrictive and that true freedom and happiness will be found in the liberating power of transgression. That feeling of control and fulfillment and freedom when we ignore the Lord's commands and do what we want. That's the way it feels sometimes. But Samson's life shows us where that path ends. Samson's life is living proof of Proverbs 5, 3 through 14, where Solomon warns his son, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Sin is attractive. It might look good. But Proverbs goes on, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Keep away from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Isn't that the story of Samson? Samson should drive us back to Proverbs 3, which calls to us, let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom For she is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Or to put it as current writer R.R. Reno puts it, plain, ordinary, moral duty, the daily diligence to do what we are called to do by God's word, always achieves a truly beautiful life that self-fulfillment never can. Of course, Samson also warns us of the deceitfulness of sin, But anyone who scoffs at Samson's repeated playing with fire and continued game with Delilah hasn't considered the ways we stay close to sin rather than running from it ourselves. Maybe it's letting bitterness hang around in our minds and hearts. Maybe it's continuing to dabble in pornography. Maybe it's spending time with people we know will pull us to foolishness and we think we can handle the temptation. It usually doesn't go any better for us than it did for Samson. And Samson also warns us against presumption as he violates his Nazarite vow repeatedly, bows to sexual temptation and seems to have little care for the Lord. Yes, the Lord shows mercy to his repentant people, but presuming on the Lord's presence regardless of our choices is neither wise nor biblical. And so you see the quote at the top of your bulletin for reflection. As Davis puts it, whether to ancient Israel or contemporary church, Samson's tragedy still speaks. Watch out, lest you abandon the divine call, leave your first love, and forfeit God's presence. See, these are the clear biblical warnings from the life of Samson. 
And we should listen to them. But if we stop with the warnings, we'll have only considered the onions at the top of the ship. They are helpful, but they're not the main point of the passage. For that, we need to look through Samson's actions to see three evidences of God's faithfulness. The first evidence of God's faithfulness is the sheer number of times this story tells us directly that the Spirit of the Lord empowered Samson's actions. Four times we're told directly the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson or stirred Samson. And in addition to that, in chapter 14, verse 4, we're told that even Samson's pursuit of a Philistine wife was from the Lord in order to bring about conflict with the Philistines. Now we have to be careful there. The repeated testimony that the Lord is at work through Samson's actions does not mean God caused Samson to sin, nor does it mean that God is just fine with Samson's sin. It doesn't mean either of those things. It means that Samson's reckless sinfulness will not thwart God's promises, and that in his providence, God will take even Samson in his sin and use him to bring about his purposes. And the text is emphasizing again and again that God is actively at work here, faithfully accomplishing his promises for his people, even through sinful Samson. But maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable with the Spirit of the Lord rushing on Samson and leading him to kill 30 guys for their clothes or chop up a thousand guys with some donkey teeth at Jawbone Hill. And so here we need to look for the second evidence of the Lord's faithfulness in chapter 15, especially chapter 15, verses 10 through 13, because there we find a dark moment in this story. Samson has struck the Philistines, but when the Philistines come to attack, Judah not only fails to rally around Samson, you'll remember that in every other episode in Judges so far, the Israelites have rallied around the judge when God has raised him up. Here, Judah not only doesn't rally around Samson, Judah actually sides with the Philistines. They're angry at Samson for upsetting the status quo. Judah would actually rather live under the Philistines, blending in with the Philistines, marrying the the Philistines, serving the Philistines and their God, then they would be willing to go to the discomfort of conflict against them. Which is why this moment is so important in the history of God's people. And why God has raised up a Samson in the first place. To reinstate the conflict between Israel and the Philistines. To interrupt this acquiesced peace between his people and his enemies. And again, I think Del Ralph Davis puts it so well. In the wake of our initial faithlessness in the garden, Yahweh declared that he was imposing enmity between the serpent seed and the woman seed. He was not going to allow even his fallen creatures to cuddle up in the bosom of evil. So the maker of heaven and earth refused to walk away from Eden, shrugging his shoulders and muttering, oh, well, you win some, you lose some. No, he is the God who will set all creation ablaze with holy war in order to have a seed and a people for himself. So this is God at work to keep the distinction and the conflict between his people and his enemies. And the stakes are high because this is not just a matter of whether Israel will serve the Philistines. This conflict also involves the honor of the name of the Lord himself. 
And for that, we just need to flip over to chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, where we find that the Philistines consider Samson's capture an evidence that their false god, Dagon, is the one who gets things done for them, and they worship him for it. That should cause God's people to bristle. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand. The Lord cared for them through the wilderness. The Lord spared them despite their idolatry with the golden calf, all so that his name might not be blasphemed, but that the nations might know that he is God. And now the honor and glory of the name of the Lord is being blasphemed and submitted to the worship of this false idol because of Israel and Samson's sin. If Israel doesn't blink an eye at that, what care do they have left for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for his name and his promises? Let me encourage us that we too ought to hate our sin, not just for the consequences it brings on us, but for the dishonor that it brings to the name of the Lord. And so God acts here out of his faithfulness, even through a rollicking rescue of Samson, to vindicate his name, to humiliate Dagon's name, collapsing his temple and his party, to keep the conflict between Israel and the Philistines alive, and to preserve his promises and his people. Well, the last evidence briefly of God's faithfulness is the way he disciplines Samson and brings him back to dependence upon the Lord. We see it Some in chapter 15, Samson had to be strutting around in all of his pride after doing in a thousand Philistines with the uh, donkey jawbone. And yet after that victory, what does God do? He brings him to a point of being parched with thirst. And at the end of chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Samson is brought to pray and to acknowledge this victory came from you, O God. He expresses his dependence upon the Lord, and God in his mercy answers. But the faithfulness of God's discipline is even more evident at the last moments of Samson's life. As the lords of the Philistines party and make Samson their entertainment, honoring their God, Samson takes his stand by the pillars and prays once again, this time calling on Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, to remember him, and enable him to be avenged against his enemies. Now, one might quibble, perhaps, with Samson's prayer. One might say, well, it seems like he's still a bit selfish. It seems like he's still a bit more concerned about avenging his own two eyes than he is about the name of the Lord. But remember that Samson, too, finds his way into the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven thirty-two, as the one who, through faith, conquered kingdoms and enforced justice. And so while I, again, like with Jephthah, may not be in a position to assess everything about Samson's heart, I believe we can say two things as we close this morning. First, Samson was supposed to be a child dedicated to the Lord, marked out to be the Lord's, to serve him his whole life. But as we've watched this story unfold, it becomes clear, doesn't it, that this is not a story about Samson's dedication to the Lord but of the Lord's commitment to Samson and to bring about his purposes through Samson. For God has accomplished what he promised. He has begun to save Israel from the Philistines just like he promised. He has used Samson to keep the conflict with the Philistines alive. The Lord has shown himself faithful even when Samson does not.
And second, in many ways, Samson is a picture of all of Israel. Israel, just like Samson, was called by God's sovereign grace, was gifted and set apart by God to be his. And yet, just like Samson, Israel has been more interested in affairs with the gods and the economies of the nations around them than they have in serving the Lord, hardly stopping to consider that the blessings they have might be taken from them if they reject their God. But if that's the case, and there's a parallel between Israel and Samson, then surely this story ends with hope. Because just as the shaven, punished Samson calls on the name of the Lord, and God in his mercy answers Samson, so Israel, despite their discipline, if they will humble themselves and call on the name of the Lord, will find hope in the mercy of God, who will again answer and redeem his people. And for us, from this side of history, that promise of the Lord's mercy is now held out to anyone who will recognize and repent of their sins and turn to trust the name of Jesus whom God has sent to take sin upon himself and to raise him up again from the dead to give life by the power of his spirit. And so whether you have lived a life that reminds you a lot of Samson's, or whether you've lived a life relying on your own moral efforts, we all come needing the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And the same God who answered Samson's cry of faith will answer your cry of faith this morning if you will come to him. So this story is a warning to us. The obvious onions staring us in the face should challenge us to be on guard against the attraction of sin and the consequences of folly. But ultimately, this story is a story of hope, of hope in the mercy of God, who did not end the story with judgment, but began to save Israel through Samson, then continued to save Israel through David, and then offered salvation to his people through Jesus, and not just to Israel, but to those of any tribe and tongue and nation who will take refuge through faith in his blood. And so may we rejoice and find our hope in such a salvation this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to this story, a story of action, a story of folly, a story that reminds us of the pull of sin and challenges us to be on guard against the attractions of temptation. But more than anything, a story that draws us again to the hope of the mercy of God. A story that draws us again to remember that even through our sinfulness, God's promises will never fail. He is faithful to complete them. And a story that reminds us that all who repent of their sin, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So may we lean on him, depend on him, and rest on him this morning finding all our joy in him. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.